Jesus said in John 15, 12 through 13, this is my commandment, love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Let's remember that tomorrow is a day designed for honoring those who have died for their friends. For those who show dedication, loyalty, and love by putting their life on the line so the people of their country could be free. Of course, it's an analogy for what Jesus Christ did for us. He gave his life through great suffering and pain so that we can be free. He showed us that kind of unconditional love and commanded us to show that love to others. So I'm going to ask if you would pause for a moment. Remember those who have sacrificed their lives for our freedoms. And let's pray for their families right now. Lord, thank you for those who have given their lives so that we can be free so that we can enjoy what we do here today, Lord, uh, without fear of anybody busting down the doors and telling us that we can't have a religious broadcast going out, Lord. We have other circumstances right now that keep us from being able to meet, but it has nothing to do with religious oppression. We have freedom of religion in this country, and we are free from so many things. And Lord, we honor those things and we value those things, but we especially think of those families who have lost loved ones in service of this country. And Lord, we pray that you would comfort them right now. On a day like today and tomorrow, especially uh, when it's a special day to remember the loss of those who've served our country. And we, we just pray that you would bring peace and comfort to those families, especially if they are still struggling in some big ways with the loss of loved ones. And Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made for us so that we can be free, but a different kind of freedom so that we can be spiritually free and have a relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that for us. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, hey, if you're new here, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors. I'm so glad you decided to join us today. Please take a moment, if you are new, and fill out our online connect card at efree.org connect so that we can get to know you. If you want to hear more about our church and chat with me a little bit to learn more about kind of where we're going as a church, if you're brand new, just check the box for that on the Connect card and we'll make sure you get that information. And if you have kids, make sure you check out all of our videos and activities at efree.org kidsonline They're going to love those. If you want to follow along with this message in another language, as long as you're watching this live, you can do that at efree.org translate. On New Year's Day, in 1929, Georgia Tech played the University of California in the Rose Bowl. It was a close and tough game, but at one point, a Georgia Tech player fumbled the ball and the All-American Center for California picked it up and ran 65 yards in the wrong direction. Roy Regals was his name and he appeared on a game show 30 years later to see if a panel could guess his secret. And this is when they revealed that secret. This, this is a very famous man, Mr. Roy Regals, and he was an All-American center for California. And in the 1929 Rose Bowl game, Georgia Tech, the opponents, fumbled the ball. Roy recovered it. Now, he spun around to avoid a tackler and suddenly found himself facing an open and empty field straight ahead, so he started running. <laughs> because for once, here was a center carrying the ball, and he meant to make good on this thing. Now, here's a picture of Roy rushing down the field, being frantically followed by his own teammates who are shouting, Roy, come back! <laughs> You're going the wrong way! <laughs> now, 
Roy, what happened? What, what finally stopped you? How did you finally stop from making a, uh, crossing your own goal line? Well, my teammate Ben Lom called to me uh, quite a few times. I was running the wrong way, and I couldn't understand it. And right. finally, uh, he caught me and grabbed me by the jersey and spun me around. And at that time, why the Georgia Tech boys uh, all piled on top of me. <laughs> well, I want to tell you this. See, uh, you've been living with this peculiar story now for 30 years. How do, you, how do you usually answer people when they ask you why it happened? Well, I don't, I don't tell them why it happened. I, I, I still think that I was doing the right thing. Humphrey, that's the way to start 1958. Make a decision and stick with it. Here is your money, sir, that you have won. And uh, your partner of Winston, thanks ever so much for being Thank with you. us. Right on. That was a contrived piece of business. That shows you what a nice guy he is. Now, what you didn't hear in that clip was what happened at halftime during that game. See, Roy just couldn't bring himself to go back on the field. He said, Coach, I can't do it. I've ruined you. I've ruined myself. I've ruined the University of California. I couldn't face that crowd again to save my life. To which his coach replied, Roy, get up. Go back out there. The game is only half over. Now, California ended up losing that game, but only by one point against a team that had outscored their opponents that year, 213 to 40. And Roy went on to serve our nation during World War II as an officer in the Army Air Corps. He then coached high school football and he even coached football at the University of California. Eventually, he started a successful agricultural business that he sold 21 years later as he retired. Anytime he saw an athlete, uh, making some kind of big mistake in a game. He would find out their address and send them a letter of his story to show them there was hope on the other side, a reason to keep going. But just imagine how Roy felt at halftime. He had 60,000 reasons to give up sitting in the stands. The temptation to just sit there in the locker room until the game was over was intense. But Roy's coach convinced him to stay faithful to what he had started his life was not over. The game wasn't even over. Have you ever had a time where you felt like Roy? Exhausted, beaten down, discouraged? Maybe because you made a mistake or maybe because of what other people did to you. The temptation in those moments is to give up, to lose sight of the big picture, to stop doing the hard things you know you need to do and start doing the easy things that seem to make life more bearable in the moment, even if they aren't healthy. It probably feels like halftime for some of you right now. And with all of the discouragement or pain or embarrassment, the easy thing to do would be to give up, to coast, to do what makes you feel good, even if it isn't wise. I have to imagine that's what Joseph felt when he arrived in Egypt. He made the mistake of parading around in his special management coat back with his family, flaunting his privilege, even telling the other brothers that he would be the ruler over all of them. But now he's a slave in Egypt, the bottom of the totem pole. How will he respond when the temptation is to think that his life is essentially over? What future is there, after all, for a Hebrew slave in Egypt? He doesn't belong there. He's used to nice food and nice clothes. He's the favorite son of a very wealthy man. But his father thinks he's dead. There will be no rescue. What will he do? We're going to continue the Life Interrupted series today. 
in Genesis 39. So go ahead and turn there in your Bible if you want to follow along. And here's a preview of what we will see today. We're going to look at two situations, two temptations, two correct responses, but two different outcomes. Remember from last week that Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers because he was dad's favorite and he let everyone know it. Now let's continue the story in Genesis 39, verse 1. When Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. And this pleased Potiphar, so soon he made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and the property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. Now, how would you respond if you found yourself in a foreign country with no friends and an ownership tag? This was a very different situation than Joseph had at home. Hebrew people weren't exactly high class to the Egyptians, What's worse, we learn later in Genesis that they despised shepherds, and that was Joseph's family business. So Joseph started out as a lowly slave, probably working with the animals. In fact, probably doing the same kind of work his brothers did that he didn't have to do back home. When we find ourselves in a crummy situation, whether it's our doing or someone else's doing or usually a combination, we tend to face these three temptations. First, to be discouraged with our circumstances. Second, to be disappointed or resentful with God. And third, to be apathetic with our lives. Now, the first one is pretty obvious. In a difficult circumstance, it's easy to be discouraged. Unless you have the gift of faith, and if that's you, you can't figure out why other people are ever discouraged with how much God has done for us. The second one is pretty obvious too, and you've probably been disappointed or resentful toward God at times. But the third one, well, we don't talk about the third one that much, but I think it's really important. We can become apathetic with our lives. Apathetic means to not really care about what you're doing, to have no drive, to not strive for excellence, but just get by. And I'm going to suggest that being apathetic in our lives is actually unfaithful to God. Now, let me say that again. I believe that to be apathetic with your life, to have no drive, to be lazy, to not care about things, to not strive for excellence in what you do, is actually an act of unfaithfulness toward God. Now, I know there can be a lot of reasons for that, but to remain in that state and not deal with it is not God's design for us. Let me demonstrate with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph, even as a slave, at the bottom of the org chart. Everything Joseph did succeeded. Potiphar noticed this and promoted Joseph to higher and higher levels in his family business. The text summarizes it, but I think we can make an educated guess as to how this worked. Maybe when Potiphar first purchased Joseph to work in his estate, he put him to work in one of the stables. 
The animals Joseph looked after thrived. They had more babies and produced stronger animals. And God gave Joseph an eye for systems, so he reorganized the stable so that there was less waste and more efficient use of space. He improved all of the processes in the stable until his stable was outperforming all the other stables combined. I don't know if that's exactly what happened, but it was something like that. Wherever Joseph was placed, that area flourished. And Potiphar noticed. As he was looking over his accounts and inspecting the output of his businesses, this one area jumped out as being way more successful than it had ever been before. Now, if you've got someone like that, you want to make sure they get promoted. So hopefully they can produce those same results on a bigger scale. And from all of this, we can identify something very important about Joseph. He was faithful to God and he gave God the glory for his excellent work. Now, how do we know that? Well, the text says Potiphar noticed how well Joseph was performing and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. The word used for the Lord here is Yahweh. In other words, this is the specific Hebrew God. Not an Egyptian God, this is the Hebrew God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Potiphar, who worships the Egyptian gods, no doubt, recognized that it was the Hebrew God, Yahweh, who was behind Joseph's success. Now, how did he know that? Because Joseph was clear about it. There's no other way Potiphar could have learned this. The text doesn't say he realized a deity was behind Joseph's success. He realized that Yahweh was behind Joseph's success because Joseph was faithful to Yahweh and gave God the credit for everything he did. And Potiphar couldn't argue with the results. So if Joseph says his God, Yahweh, is the reason, and these results are truly miraculous, like nothing we've ever seen before, there must be something to this God, Yahweh. Joseph was faithful, and he gave God the credit. Now, ultimately, everything we have and everything we're able to do is a gift from God. It's God's grace that enables us to have the abilities and talents and resources and everything else. But that doesn't mean we aren't also a part of the equation. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says that we are God's co-workers. As much as God gets the credit for what Joseph was able to accomplish, we also need to recognize that Joseph didn't mess it up. Consider the story of Samson. God blessed Samson with incredible gifts and success as well. And Samson became a cautionary tale of how someone can take the blessing of God and foolishly throw it away. But Joseph continued to be faithful, reliable, stewarding the blessing God gave him. Joseph didn't just have God's blessing. He also worked hard. He produced. He built something better than it was before. So much better that the boss couldn't help but notice. And you know what these verses in Genesis don't show? They don't show Joseph sulking each day because his dream of importance wasn't coming true. He could become a lazy, bitter, negative person because his hopes were dashed to pieces by his own family, but that's not what he does. Even after a difficult and traumatic experience being sold into slavery, he does not define himself by being a victim. He defines himself by being a worshiper of Yahweh and applying himself fully to the tasks in front of him with the abilities God has given him. And there's a great lesson here for us. Don't wait for the job you want 
to start applying yourself. Pursue excellence wherever God has you right now. Maybe it's not the position you hope to have for the future. But if that's beyond your control right now, what is within your control? How can you make the most of where you are today? How can you excel in the role you have now? How can you use the gifts God has given you to make your current area of responsibility flourish and thrive? I have seen too many men in particular allow disappointment to become the defining characteristic of their life. When we were young, we had big dreams of what we wanted to do and accomplish. But for almost all of us, life takes us on an unexpected journey. And some of our roles aren't always what we had hoped for. If we're not careful, we can allow that disappointment to turn into apathy. We punch in and punch out and forget what it means to pursue excellence, to build something, to make things better wherever we are. What you see in Joseph is that he pursued excellence. Everything he did prospered, and God gets all the credit for that, but Joseph could have messed it up. Let me summarize it this way. When you use the gifts God gives you, wherever God has you right now to pursue excellence in everything you do, people will notice and you can give God the glory. Don't be lazy and always seeking your own selfish pleasure like Samson. Be faithful where you're at right now like Joseph. And that's why I can say to be apathetic, to be lazy, to give up, is to be unfaithful to God. In fact, it is robbing him of the glory he deserves. It's taking away opportunities for people to ask you why you did such a good job and how you did such a good job, even with such a menial task. And, and for you to be able to say, because of the God who made me, because he is an excellent God and he made me to do excellent things. And because of what Paul said in Colossians 3.23, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Another version says, Work at it with all your heart because you're doing it for God and not for men. If you're struggling with self-worth, with disappointment and temptations to give up, I want you to hear these words right now. God made you better and more capable than you probably think. It's time to be faithful to him and give him the glory he deserves. So Joseph is promoted to the highest level of authority under Potiphar. And now Potiphar doesn't worry about anything but what food he wants to eat. In other words, he doesn't have to make any decisions because Joseph is so reliable and so responsible. And there's a great principle here. If you want to succeed in your job, do it well enough that your supervisor doesn't have to worry about what you do. Do it so well that eventually they don't feel the need to check up on your work because it is always excellent. That is what Joseph did. But now our story is going to take a bizarre turn. Verse 6 says, Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. Okay, thanks for that extra info, Moses. I was with you through the faithfulness at work lesson. But why do I care what Joseph looked like? Literally, the text means that he had a good-looking body and a good-looking face. Well, the reason we get this context is to set up the second situation. Joseph could have been unfaithful in his work. And we've seen how that would actually be unfaithfulness toward God. Now, he's going to be tempted in a new way. And he's going to be tempted to be unfaithful in three relationships. Three relationships will be tested. There's Joseph's relationship with Potiphar. It's his boss who trusts him with everything in his home and his business. 
he trusts him to not have a relationship with his wife while he is gone and out of the home. Then there's Joseph's relationship with Potiphar's wife. She's not Joseph's wife. So there need to be some boundaries there. And the third relationship is Joseph's relationship with God. So let's see how each of these relationships are tested. Verse 6, Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded, but Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. And Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the home. So now Joseph is in a new and difficult situation where three relationships are being tested. How does he respond this time? Well, first he mentions the trust that Potiphar has in him. It took a long time to build that trust, and he will not break it. Second, he mentions the relationship that this woman has with Potiphar. She's his wife. She has a special relationship of trust with Potiphar, and, and that shouldn't be broken. But the third reason is the most important. He says, how could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a sin against God. Because of Joseph's relationship with God, he understands that marriage comes from God and should not be broken by anyone else. Jesus later explained it this way in Mark 10. He said, But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Now, I know not all of you are married, but all of you have relationships. And unfaithfulness in relationships can show up in different ways. It could be always choosing work over family. It could be saying you'll do something and then not following through. It could be dwelling on thoughts that would damage the relationship if the other person knew about them. And it could be getting involved with someone emotionally or physically that breaks the trust of a relationship. So what can we learn from Joseph's response? What do you do when you're tempted to be unfaithful in relationships? Well, number one, he politely declined and explained why. It would break relational trust in this case. Number two, he connected the temptation with sinning against God. See, it's not just about the other person. It's also about God's will and his desires for us. He knows what's best and gives us direction that is meant for our good. It actually keeps us from experiencing pain and the consequences of our actions down the road. And number three, he got as far away from the temptation as quickly as possible. He didn't wait around and look for a while. He didn't make a pros and cons list. He didn't see how far he could go without getting caught. He literally ran away. I always thought it was interesting that the Bible says we should resist the devil, but we should run from temptation. Here's something all of us need to remember. You cannot control what other people do to you, but you can control 
whether you are trustworthy and faithful in your relationships. Satan is a master at presenting opportunities for you to be unfaithful. He bombards you with chances to break trust and cross relational boundaries because if he can get you to fall, then maybe he can get you to be defined by that failure and maybe he can take you out of the game completely. For some of you, the big takeaway from today is to remain faithful. Faithful at work and faithful at home. Faithful to where God has you right now. Pursuing excellence for His glory wherever that is. Faithful to your relationships and the trust that has been given to you. But for some of you, the big takeaway isn't about not being unfaithful in the future. It's about recovering from a bad decision you've already made. Maybe you've already fallen victim to temptation, and now you feel like your life is defined by your mistakes. That's exactly what the enemy wants you to think. He wants you to wallow. He wants you to become apathetic. He wants you to lose sight of how God made you, gifted you, and designed you to serve others. He wants you to think more about yourself and your past than about helping people in your future. Joseph's life was like a series of mountains and valleys. He went from being the favorite son of a wealthy man to the lowest slave as an ethnic minority in a foreign land. He contributed to that downfall, by the way. His actions and pride led to his brothers wanting to get rid of him. And then he had a halftime moment. He could have checked out, focused on his own disappointment, felt nothing but hatred for his brothers, but that's not what he did. He got back in the game. He proved himself faithful in his work. And when given a chance to damage relationships in the home, he did the right thing and determined to be faithful there too. And we'll talk about the results of that next week. But I just want to leave you with this thought. It's never too late to get back in the game. Proverbs 24, 16 says, The godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. But one disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this story of Joseph. What an amazing thing for us to be able to see this guy who made some mistakes, but ultimately remained faithful to you. And like so many of the stories in the Bible, it's opened up for us to see the errors that they made so that we can learn from them, but also see that they're real people just like us. And we can relate to that. We can relate to them, Lord, but to see your faithfulness to them through everything. And so God, my prayer for everyone watching this right now is that you would help us to remain faithful in wherever you have us right now. Wherever we are working, if we have a job, in our home life, in our ministries, and whatever it is we're doing, help us to pursue excellence so that we can give the glory to you. Help us to work at it with all our heart, willingly, not as if we're doing it for people, but because we're ultimately really doing it for you. And God, my prayer for everyone watching right now is that you would help them to remain faithful in their relationships, Lord. For the marriages of people at home right now, God, I pray that you would watch over them in their purity and their love for each other and their transparency and their trust. Help them to avoid and flee temptation that would break the trust of those relationships, God. And not just for those who are married, but all of our relationships, different family members and boyfriends and girlfriends and fiancés and, and siblings and all of the relationships that we have, Lord. Help us to be faithful in them. Not just because of that other person, but because it's what you want from us. And we can give you the glory and the praise for everything. In Jesus' name, amen.